Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Medlin, producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right, so today we thought we'd uh, maybe take a divergence from some of the crazy stuff going on in the economy with politics and inflation and all of that stuff and talk about the good old days of drug awareness. Uh, so there was a program called D.A.R.E. back in the 80s. I graduated from Anoka High School in 1989, and uh, this program was kind of out there and pretty prominent in the 1980s. And so, Justin, you had some things to say about it to get us started and kind of what it is and where it's taken us. Yeah. So if you're an American and went to school in the 80s and 90s, you probably had a D.A.R.E. program that you went through or whose officers came to visit you. So I think D.A.R.E. was active from 1983 to 2009. D.A.R.E. stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. And if you've uh, ever seen, you know, those shirts that say you know, D-A-R-E, and then underneath it, they say like, you know, to resist drugs and violence or D.A.R.E. to resist drugs. And this sprung out of the kind of war on drugs that was really kicked off in the 1980s. Nancy Reagan was famously a huge proponent of the war on drugs. And so the D.A.R.E. campaign was also rolled out at around the same time that Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign was rolled out. Mm, just Say No, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what's interesting is that it doesn't seem like either of these programs were uh, smashing successes. There's been, and there was an Onion article a while ago that said, you know, um, drugs win war on drugs, right? <laughs> and you could say the same thing for things like like the war on poverty or the war on terror, right? It just seems like whenever we have these huge, gigantic government programs to address um, specific societal ills, they end up catastrophically failing and often um, exacerbating the very things that they are meant to solve. And so we, if if we could focus on D.A.R.E. and focus on the specific reasons why D.A.R.E. was a failure, I think we can maybe get some insight into why these policies or these campaigns in general tend to be failures. And so I've got like eight points that, that we can share. That one, sounds good. One is like the, the D.A.R.E. persistently gave incorrect information. <laughs> D.A.R.E. claimed that cannabis was a gateway drug, a single dose of which can get you addicted. Mm. Um, and they perpetuated the claim that like psychedelics can cause flashbacks or that psychedelics do cause mm. flashbacks. So instead of dare, they were more into scare with bullet point number one. Well, they were trying <laughs> to scare, right? But it turns out that when you tell the, those things to a 13 year old boys, those aren't scare tactics, right? There's so Norm MacDonald has a bit when he talks about when he tried LSD or acid, he said he tried it because he was told, you know, you can take the acid now and it's a psychedelic. And then later you'll have a flashback. And he thought, you know, well, two for the price of one. How can I turn that down? <laughs> and then he says, you know, it's been 30 years, no flashback. And he goes, I guess that was just more lies from the big acid companies. But, um, <laughs> big acid. <yeah. laughs> and look, it's a, it's a funny joke, but the point is like, 
these kids are being fed misinformation, but not only misinformation, but misinformation that anyone with, you know, a, an even rudimentary model of how the 13 year old male brain works would see that this misinformation is actually going to make these things seem more appealing mm-hmm. uh, rather than less appealing. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only that, these pamphlets that they gave out, you know, these are the drugs and this is what they do. It's oh, this is really good information. It's great. Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, it, it produced a, a bunch of school children to uh, drugs that they didn't know that existed. They ever it gave them a list of the things that they might want reasons why they might want to try those drugs. <laughs> And so it's it was just like catastrophically bad. I, I don't know if you guys remember your dare programs and uh, they tried to they show us videos of people like dying from one dose of cannabis. And that'd be like the, it was the scare tactic. Really, you really remember a video? Like yeah, that? like and it would be like the video they showed was supposedly in the same town as where I grew up, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this person tried one dose, and their friends didn't know what to do, and he died." <laughs> I don't know. When I was there, it seemed like 20% learning about all the drugs, the details of the drugs, what they do. And then the other 80% was go play kickball outside. So we're going to teach you about all these drugs and then you can go play some kickball and think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't, do you remember who taught your dare program? I think mine was my science teacher. Oh, with really? Mixed with like the people that came in from yeah. The Fed, or whatever they the people that came, they usually brought cops in. Yeah, they had, yeah, like that's what I, I mean. I assume they were kind of either volunteer police officers doing it, or maybe that was assigned part of their duties, and they were fine. You know, instead of beating the streets, they were. It was a well to go into. So it was a well-funded federal program. Yeah. So I'm sure they got paid. They for got doing some it, sort right? of paid um, extra. Yeah, but it turns out that like the qualities that might make you a good police officer uh, might also not make you a great instructor for fifth graders mm-hmm. right um right and furthermore like from fifth grade through junior high the police often are people that kids who are susceptible to drug use dislike the most right mm-hmm. they're running from the police who are telling them not to skateboard on stuff or whatever so <laughs> if it turns out that like oh this i'm also going to give you a, a list of things that the police that i you know the police the man, the fuzz, whatever, uh, disapprove of, that's going to come across like a list of cool things to any 13-year-old kid who wants to, you know, is actually like on the vert, like wants to be a rebel, right? So it's just a, a, you want like, how how are these policies thought out? And um, And they're not like so many other policies, right? Let's do something with drugs and tell them they're bad. And okay, now how does this get administered? Oh, let's let's use police officers or whatever, you know, it just, uh, I don't think those things always are thought out and the operations of it from a poli, you know, the politicians pass something and then the bureaucrats figure out how to play it out. And that's not always a good mix. Yeah. And they also like, so the, they used to hand out pencils that said too cool to do drugs, you know, but if you shave them down, it starts to say cool to do drugs. And then just, you know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just do drugs. You know, finally just drugs, right? <laughs> oh, I see. You mean as you're sharpening the pencil? <laughs> <laughs> at first, I was thinking kids were like editing it, but you're just saying the no. natural sharpening pencil. Yeah. <laughs> Even, you know, Susie Teetotaler's pencil says do drugs after she's been using it for a while, right? (laughs) The other thing is that I think is kind of reflective of the generation who is trying to implement this is the 
entire push was of the just say no campaign and the dare campaign was like let's try to make it cool to not do drugs mm-hmm. right and i think this is just a leftover i have i have big theses about like what generational groups like the boomers or like gen xers like they're pictured of themselves and i think the i mean this was a policy that was instituted by boomers right yeah it's right when the boomers started having kids it's right gen x ends like 82 right so it's the boomers trying to convince the young people to do something and i think baby boomers have this conception of themselves that they were the rebels and the cool generation Mm -hmm. Um, and why they did things was because it was rebellious right and so they think well i know how we can get these kids to do stuff we can since we're so cool we can tell these kids what the cool thing is we think it's cool then it'll be cool yeah and so you have these baby boomers (laughs) trying to convince young people about what's cool without like realizing that that's the equivalent of like you know, their parents telling them what was right. like, it's missing the rebellion factor, which is actually the key ingredient yeah, like, for the cool. You're not cool anymore. <laughs> you can't be cool forever. You like, can you please just gracefully age out here? It's like, give some accurate information to uh, to kids. You know, they would give sheets to kids that said, "Here are thirty ways to say no to weed." And I mean, there's just like, get a job, you hippie wasteoid. <laughs> I was raised right. I won't lie. Wow, they had a talking point list. Huh? It's 50 th- phrases you can say. Uh, what do I look like? A failure? My favorite. I will use my taser on you. <laughs> but like, kind of like trying to shepherd kids into like what you think is cool is, is so obviously going to fail that, again, uh, this could have been seen from the get-go as something that's going to have the opposite effect of of the way it's intended yeah um, yeah it makes me think of my uh, son's thing i did equip him with one but i had to buy it and that was this antarctica trip that we're finally going to be able to go on after covid but he'd uh, go to parties and they'd say well why aren't you drinking he's like he'd just say you know no and they're like why and he'd say i'm going to antarctica and they're like what <laughs> and so the antarctica trip was something that we said we'd do when he was 21 if he didn't drink till then but we equipped him with one of those lines but i had to pay for it you can't just like say come up with little buzzwords and think that that's going to work yeah you incentivized him right, right? Um, yes and yeah. the incentive was i'll give you this thing that you actually can give him yeah not you'll be cool if you say this <laughs> like you can't give like, right. can't grant coolness yeah yeah as a result there was a bunch of studies done and it's shown that dare was not effective at all right okay. and there at that's least, what i was wondering there must have been empirical studies yeah. of how much drug use among teens or whatever at least one empirical study showed that kids who attended dare programs did more drugs than kids <laughs> who didn't right and you might think like from the perspective of the government what should the response to that be yeah to pull out but they probably didn't until i, I mean the, 2009 you said and we probably had the empirical evidence in the 90s at some point i'm sure they just <laughs> they stopped it they, you know when they stopped it they just renamed it as something else we had like the truth tobacco campaign or whatever yeah i think the response from government in these cases is always like well we should put more money into it right and in that case these kinds of programs become like self-licking ice cream cones where they they cause the problem that they're supposed to solve and that increase in the problem is used as evidence that that program needs more money to solve that problem again. And I think you see this, you know, in the areas that we mentioned earlier, it's not just the war on drugs, it's the war on terror, it's the war on poverty. These programs don't work. And as much as you like to think something like, well, 
rather than assuming malfeasance, let's assume just like stupidity. At some point you go like, they seem <laughs> like they're designed not to work. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and I, the Pareto principle comes to mind of the 80-20 the rule when I see these things. And it's a it's an unwritten rule, but it's kind of a rule of thumb that, you know, maybe you the listeners have heard of all the people out there working, you know, 20%, if you have a, a staff of employment and 20% of them do the work and 80% kind of flounder along. So you're basically, most of your productivity is captured by 20% of the people. And I've kind of seen this with other things too, in that there's probably always going to be 20% of drug user, abuser, or whatever, some fraction. And no matter what you do, they're still going to do it. And the other 80% will listen to the program or have to go through the DARE program, but they weren't going to do it anyway, or they weren't going to abuse it at higher levels. So we're, we're not really contributing anything. There's certain states of nature that just tend to be. And uh, suspending so millions of dollars and billions in some cases on programs like this, uh, we see that ineffectiveness time and time again. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break. So I wanted to think about drinking and driving a little bit because I feel like maybe that is a program that got some traction. I don't feel like students today drink and drive like I did back in my college days. And so I'm going to challenge Justin to see if he thinks there's anything uh, to that claim. We'll be back in just a bit. Auto University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, so we're back uh, thinking about public policy and drug use and abuse, and some stuff is legal, some stuff isn't, right? So we, we've had alcohol illegal at one point in time during Prohibition that, of course, came back and was probably our primary drug through time. And now uh, cannabis is being legalized in many states throughout the nation. So this program D.A.R.E., I mean, what do you think was the biggest problem with it, Justin? I think one of the biggest problems was that D.A.R.E. had a zero tolerance policy and also a kind of policy of leveling drugs where, you know, you should, you should always just say no to all drugs because all drugs are bad. And I think that can come off as all drugs are equally bad. Yeah. And that's not the case. Uh, all drugs aren't equally bad. Right. Start um, math to yeah, and whatever. if and yeah. this kind of demonization of all 
all drugs at such a young age kind of fit right in. The other aspect of the war on drugs wasn't just this miseducation part. It was the the application of the law. So, I mean, we're at a point now where drug offenses are the leading cause of arrest in the United States. And that's uh, recent data. That's like yeah, the last currently. Uh, so 2.3 million people are currently incarcerated in the U.S., and at least one of five of those is, is for a drug offense. Hmm. And a lot of those drug offenses, the majority of those are marijuana arrests, followed by heroin or cocaine arrests, and then hmm. other drugs. But And they're probably not, I mean, I don't know if the data shows it or not, but are these just users or like these are the dealers, you know, that we really got behind bars for marijuana or whatever? I think it would really vary based on state, because if the majority of them are marijuana arrests, uh, the marijuana laws in this country are wildly divergent. Yeah. Right. So we have something like 20 something states where marijuana is legalized. It's often legalized recreationally. And I think that when somebody is told all drugs are bad and mar you, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug, you should definitely say no to it. And then all of a sudden there's this huge about face and I go, oh, well, you know, whatever, it's marijuana, right? It's a Colorado. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then I think that can easily lead somebody to say like, oh, if marijuana's not so bad, I'm gonna try the other ones too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, maybe we were lied to about the others too. Exactly. Right. Really uh, you know, if you lie to <laughs> kids are really good at detecting BS. Yeah. And once they think that you're telling them BS, good luck trying to convince them of anything else. Yeah. Right. And if you look at overdose deaths in the United States, they've skyrocketed lately. And so they've gone up from under 20,000 in 1999 to over a hundred thousand in 2021. Whew. Um, I think yeah, a so lot of that could be contributed to the fentanyl yeah, flooding into the country. I think maybe with the stair program that coupled with that issue of, you know, we're exposing these kids more to drugs and now they're a little bit more susceptible now that they're our age to uh, doing drugs. Now we have all this fentanyl flooding into the country into various different types of probably not that harmful drugs that people are just constantly overdosing on. I wonder if that's a big issue. Has fentanyl always been around, but it's just been a big thing, or is it a no. recent innovation? And no, fentanyl. Like three years or so. A recent innovation. Okay. It really came on the scene in. That's when I thought it was recent. In like the you know 2011s was when you started to see some uh, overdose deaths via fentanyl. Fentanyl is oh, a synthetic. Okay, so 2011. Okay. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. What makes fentanyl lucrative is that it is so potent by its dose. So if you are trying to get opioids into somewhere where it is forbidden, what you want is the most potent amount of opioid per kilo or per, mm -hmm. per area, right? So that makes it really lucrative to, if you're smuggling, to use fentanyl instead. Yeah. So in answer to Lawson's question about is fentanyl causing all these deaths? Yes, it's the one that's like, whose curve is, you know, asymptotically <laughs> approaching vert the vertical line, right? Yeah. It's increasing exponentially and still on an exponential curve. But interestingly, all the other, so the other categories are like meth, cocaine, and prescription opioids, and heroin. All the other ones are also increasing too, hmm. with the exception of heroin. Uh, heroin has started to go down. And I think the reason that heroin has started to go down is just because they're substituting fent yeah. fentanyl for it, right? Cheaper. So while... I think it's crazy to tell kids like marijuana is a gateway drug that you can be addicted to once when you take it. And then, you know, you're done for the rest of your life. And, you know, and that's just like, you know, heroin is and fentanyl and prescription opioids are too. So a lot of the fentanyl deaths, if you look at them, they start out with 
prescription opioids, people who were, because we were overprescribing Oxycontin for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. People who start with Oxycontin, get off it, can't right. get a prescription anymore. So they start using heroin and then move from heroin to, to fentanyl, yeah. right? Now, in all fairness, did the, did the mantra of use it once for cannabis and you're hooked, was that through the whole time period or did that, was that mostly the 80s or 90s and then it phased off? I don't know if that article even says it, but I'd imagine it phased off, like, right? I mean, we in had the to have come 2000s even, I remember seeing ads where, you know, somebody's at a drive-in and their car's filled with pot smoke and then they run over a little girl who's walking in front. It's like... <laughs> Really? Yeah. Little Cheech and Chong moment, but death. Yeah. Now, I'm not advocating for the recreational use of marijuana or whatever, right? It has drawbacks, Mm -hmm. but nobody's overdosing on marijuana. Um, Nobody's dying from it. And in you do see people getting hooked very quickly on prescription opioids and moving to black market opioids. Yeah. Evidence doesn't bear that out for marijuana, right? And so, or, or even... I think like psychedelics either. So lying to these kids about what causes what enables, causes them to make these false equivalences, which can drive people from one category into mm-hmm. the other who wouldn't be susceptible to it otherwise. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so I, I, that would be my claim for what, what the biggest problem is. So is legalization the, the answer? Um, I guess I've always been a proponent of that. So if it's legalized, then maybe if heroin's legalized, for instance, it's a lot cheaper, easier, more accessible, and people don't move into fentanyl if it's their drug of choice. I had always been a proponent of of legalization too. I think I think the reason we have fentanyl is because things aren't legalized, right? Um, and the I think the majority of fentanyl overdoses come from the fact that since it's so potent, it's very hard to dose correctly. And so you get these accidental overdoses um, in fentanyl um, because it's such mm-hmm. a tiny, tiny amount to be so, so potent. I do think that that decriminalization of the drugs, that, and we know that certain drugs are less dangerous to your overall health. I do think that's good. I'm not sure where I want to stop anymore. I used to think decriminalize everything, but I argued for decriminalizing everything. But I also think that when you have a society like ours, I mean, we can, we it seems like we're actually running the experiment in some states. Uh, yeah. Right. And look, I I have to say that it looks like those states that have decriminalized things like uh oh, some, like illicit opioid use, in particular heroin and fentanyl and methamphetamine. These cities look like war zones now. Yeah, um, but at the same time, they're attracting the addicts because they can openly use it there, right? So they are. They're also they're they're a magnet to it. So that isn't necessarily that the existing people in that state started using it now all of a sudden because it was open, but rather there was this migration. Has yeah. to be a decent part of the argument, I think, um, especially from cities that are less tolerant right. um, to cities that are more tolerant in those states too. Yeah, and those cities also often are cities that have really generous, yes, and uh, benefits and other generous social services. Let's say, yeah, where uh, enable you, you know you can get paid by the city uh, to do this. So there's a kind of enabling factor which goes on there too, which yeah. is really tough to disentangle. Right. So I'm I'm not in favor of legalizing meth and heroin for that reason. I'm still even a little on the fence. Uh, and it, I kind of come back to my 80-20 rule. I, I kind of think there's just 20% of the people that are always going to do it, whether it's legal or illegal, and the other 80% are going to choose not to do it. So if it is legal... I think the results are going to look very similar, I suspect. I don't, I don't think the 
legalization is going to incentivize. In fact, it might cause people to make themselves more aware and educated on the effects of marijuana versus the effects of meth, the effects of fentanyl. So I agree with you all the same. I, I wobble back to it. But if it is illegal, you at least have a kind of recourse to move these people off the street into something else or even something like, you know, I saw a video where a mother was saying like, you know, she's just trying to get help for her son in San Francisco who's addicted to to fentanyl and he's like living in a cardboard box behind a dumpster and she can't get the police to arrest him, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so those kinds of cases make yeah. me think that. Yeah, the open use of it because it's legal could make culture change and not be as nice to be able to get people help like you said or otherwise just yeah in in cities that have very large um public areas areas that are publicly owned it's hard to keep people out of those places who are abusing those drugs if it isn't criminalized in some sense right right even if you're not going into people's homes and criminalizing them for using it there or something like that yeah all right do you think the public policies and stuff with the Drinking and driving has been effective. That was my cliffhanger at the halftime that I'm anxious to hear if I, at least from what I've observed, it seems like people are much more conscientious about it and will go to fairly extreme measures. And I think the innovation of Uber and maybe some other things helped, but I feel like there's just a general consensus, like let's not drink and drive. Somebody's got to be smart here. And I don't know. Do you think that's changed or... Has it and if it did change, was it due to public policy or due to some sort of sh- cultural shift? I think it did change. I was watching a clip from the seventies the other day, and it was about how a <laughs> town was instituting stricter rules about drinking and driving. And they talked to these guys who had just coming out of the plant, and they're like, "This is ridiculous! Like, <laughs> all I want to do when I get off work is sit in my car and have a couple beers with my buddies before we go home." <laughs> and they were saying this like on public television, right? Like, and they're totally deadpan serious. Deadpan yeah. serious. And one presumes that a lot of the viewers agree with them, right? Like, <laughs> this is what you do when you get off work. You right. go drink in your car, and then you crank the key and get on the road and drive home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And I mean, this was actually one of the original complaints against automobiles was that like, you know, when I get drunk at the bar, my horse, I can, my horse will get me home, but like my car will not get me home. (laughs) Never heard that one. Yeah, Yeah, that, that would make sense. Yeah. So, yeah. And I actually do think it was probably a result of public policy because, you know, things like Mothers Against Drunk Driving was very successful in getting uh, very, you know, stricter laws passed and really strict punishments for people who drive drunk. Yeah, I've I've never been convicted of drunk driving, but I know a lot of people who have, and it's really onerous. Yeah. You know, you you have to have a breathalyzer put in your car. It yeah. costs you like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, and it, um, I mean, it was a couple thousand probably. I had a few friends that did, and it was 10, 15 years ago, and it was two to 3,000 or something. Yeah, like a breathalyzer, they make you rent it, and yeah. then you have to get it serviced every, like, it's... Mm, it's in a, order to start your car. Yeah, it's thing. a whole thing that they get you into. Yeah. So I'm not so sure, well, I actually think probably both happened, that people think it's morally worse now <laughs> than, it, than they thought, and also just that the punishments are so high that people are less likely to do it. Yeah, Luke, what's your view on that as a younger person here in the 20s? I mean, 
it, first of all, is it true? Do you, did you think a lot of your friends did drink and drive anyway and they didn't care? Or do you think there was a, a, a pretty serious attempt to always have a designated driver or find alternative means? In high school, I didn't really drink too much, which was good. So I didn't really have to worry about that problem. Uh, here in college, I was usually the DD personally. I've never been one to to be a huge drinker, but I, I it was always like, have to have a driver. Yeah. Who's driving? If you don't have a driver, we need to find a driver. Right. right. It was, we never really, it was like someone was like, I'm so going to drive regardless of the wind. Exactly. To uh... But I do have some friends who would like go to schools in really small towns and they would hit the country, the back roads. Sure. And that's when they would drink and drive, right. I guess. So maybe but... rural drinking has remained strong. <laughs> remained strong. Roads. Yeah. <laughs> rural drinking and driving has remained prevalent. Maybe strong around the world, but yeah. Just to be clear, I think that I mean, drinking and driving is uh, much more dangerous in an urban environment sure. too. Right. I mean, it is dangerous on country roads. I actually worked with a guy who was drinking and driving out on the country roads and rolled his car and, uh, wow. you know, had to be massive reconstructive surgery. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I kind of wonder, I think we're running out of time for this episode and this seems like it could be a whole episode maybe, but, and we have done episodes on this, I guess, but whether the phone is the new addiction and that's somewhat substituted for drug use as an escape, right? So people, instead of getting high, can get out their phone and escape to TikTok land or whatever, that some substitution has occurred with the phones in every 13-year-old's hand or almost every 13-year-old's hand. Can I say one more thing about the drinking sure. and driving versus drugs before we go to the phone? Yeah. Note that like what we we said worked about drinking and driving, you know, increasing penalties. What we right. didn't have the real incentives. We didn't have a campaign saying like it's not, not cool. cool. <laughs> like, here are ten things to say like about how to be a DD. You know, like, <laughs> right. Yeah, it was actually dealing with like the real world effects of these things and yeah. being honest about like, look, we'll do a test and show you the the reaction time about when you're drunk. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of, I remember like, oh, I don't know, ABC News special, whatever, those little programs that would show, okay, and they'd have celebrities drinking and driving and then do the test through the cones and stuff. And so, again, providing empirical evidence that, yeah, this is not a smart thing to do. So, yeah, yeah good point. Good point. They would give you those goggles and... <laughs> They put you in front of the car. I think freshman year they did it on campus. Oh, did they? Yeah, like a little simulator. Mm. Oh, I hit so many people. That was, it was terrible. <laughs> they like throw people in front of the road just randomly. You have to, like, but react. they wouldn't give you guys drinks. You would just no. Uh, it's just goggles. The goggles that yeah. look like yeah. Just, well, just distort your the vision. thing I'm talking about. They'd actually be putting back oh my drinks and <laughs> and then go drive in a controlled environment. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, that that's a good point. But I don't know. What do you think about these phones? You're saying drug use is up, so maybe that's a weak argument. Maybe maybe they're compliments to each other that we're going to do more drugs because I'm so stressed out by the stuff I'm seeing on the phone that I better uh, smoke some pot or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think the phone is substituting for, for drugs. <laughs> it might compliment it, yeah. right, in a bad way. I, I think, personally, I, I think there's an increase in drugs and phone use because of just how society's gotten a little bit more comfortable technology innovation and such that we're more bored than we used to be mm. less things like there's less things for us to do throughout a day than there would have been 50 mm. years ago so people want to fill their times and I feel like that would be like your phone especially like i have an hour to kill let me hop yeah. on tiktok and kill this boredom that i have yeah it's also you know when we talked about the phone being something that you just kind of like passively absorb information rather than participating in it yeah i yeah. think that's a good 
medium that pairs well with certain types of drugs that people, yeah. uh, rather than, you know, going out and playing a game or something. Uh, well, I was even, I, I thought we were, I was thinking the same thing as you, but maybe not. I'm thinking uh, smoking a joint is actually something that you're participating with somebody together with, unless you're just smoking alone, of course. But I mean, you're physically passing it, you're lighting it, there's something tactile to it that's different from the phone too. And it's maybe like, oh, I want to be with people. Hey, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm making up stuff now at this point. But, uh, <laughs> but it is interesting to explore. I, maybe we can't uh, blame everything on the phone, but Listeners, it wasn't uh, more than a couple podcasts ago that I advised banning phones for people under the age of eighteen, and and I still uh, I still think that's a good good thing. And maybe that would then, if they're compliments, that would lead to less drug use. I don't know. So, all right. Well, any other last words here? I think so. It's like a good place to wrap. I think it's fun to explore that uh, area and. There, you know, one thing we didn't get into is there are other countries that have fully legalized, and I don't think they've had a bunch of detrimental effects, but that might just be another podcast down the road. So look. Well, I should say that uh, when we were talking about the D.A.R.E. thing, it's, I got a lot of this information about like when D.A.R.E. started and like particular things from a, a thread by the Archaic Revival on Twitter who had the thread. So I just don't, oh, okay. don't want to be accused of show notes. Okay, yeah. yeah. Archaic Revival. All right. So we'll put that in the show notes. This podcast has been a production of the Gortney Institute. Here at Otto University, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Please pass this along to your friends, both users and non-users of drugs, as you see fit, uh, to see if they might find it entertaining and educational. So other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.